you guys have your Bibles, and I hope you do, you can open up to Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 to 26. Paul writes this, writes these words. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, it is, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. There's a sweet time in my life that I love to reflect on, and it's a time when I was 16, and I was reading a book by John Piper called Desiring God. And as I was reading this book, I don't know if any of you guys have ever had this kind of experience where you're reading a book, and it's just completely transforming your understanding of who God is. I was reading this book, Desiring God, and in it, I was uncovering treasures from the word that would forever change my life. In fact, it would change my life so much so that I tell people that I have, uh, I, I, I split my life into kind of two halves, the pre-desiring God half and the post-desiring God half. And some of the youth would probably add that there's a significant date where I got my cat in that life too. And I should probably add my marriage to that. And probably my conversion as well. So maybe we'll stop there. Five significant things. But this was a significant time in my life. I was learning that our purpose on earth is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And I began to understand that salvation is infinitely more than just being saved from hell. It's infinitely more than that. It's being free to experience true delight. That salvation is being free freed to experience true joy in Jesus Christ and and the only source that can provide that. When we begin to acknowledge that our purpose in life is to glorify God, we start to unleash ourselves to true joy in the world. The Spirit opens our eyes to the fact that joy can actually be found only in God. That we live for the express purpose to glorify Him. Yet often, doesn't our lives show the opposite? Isn't it true with you that so often we get caught up in the things of this world? Time after time, we begin to believe that the things of this world will satisfy, that that sin and idolatry will do something for us that it's never done before, that it'll actually give us lasting and eternal pleasure. Life's filled with trials, temptations, and distractions. And the point of these things is to draw us away from believing that joy can actually be found in Jesus Christ alone. And so we face trials and we face temptations and it starts to wear on us and we start to feel this weight and we start to question if what the Bible says about experiencing joy is really true. And as I read this book, Desiring God, my eyes were opened to the fact that it is always true. There is always greater joy in the pursuit of Jesus Christ. It's a joy that keeps us close to Jesus Christ in the darkest valley 
where we're prone to believe that God doesn't care to us. And it's a joy that keeps us close to Christ on the highest mountain when we're prone to forget the blessings that God has given us. When we set our eyes on living for God's glory, we find that we can find joy in any circumstance in life. And Paul in this passage wants to teach us that. He teaches us about three things that happen when we live for the glory of God. And the first is this. When I live for the glory of God, I have purpose in my trials. Look at the resolve beginning in the second half of verse 18. Paul says this. Yes, and I will rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Paul is resolved. He makes this astounding resolution that he will rejoice no matter what happens to us. As we think about the context of this passage, this resolution becomes even more significant. See, in in verses 12 to 18, Paul's been explaining that he is in jail and his wrists are bound with chains. All that he sees are these chains around his wrists and these walls of this prison, and yet he says these very words, even though I'm bound, the gospel is not bound. The gospel is not bound. No, instead, while I'm in prison, the gospel is going forth because of my imprisonment. All he sees are chains around his wrists and the walls of his prison cell, and from his perspective, things are bleak. But Paul recognizes that there is a greater purpose in his trial, and that's the glory of God. Paul can rejoice in his trial and in his suffering because God's purpose is being accomplished. He can rejoice because God's purpose is being accomplished, not because his own circumstance is being accomplished, not because he's being delivered from prison, but because he knows that God, that Christ will be honored in this. This is what Paul's laying before us. When we set our hopes on God's glory rather than our perspective, then our, re- our rejoicing will persevere rather than perish. Let me say that again for you note takers. When, when our hopes are set on God's glory rather than our perspective, then our rejoicing will persevere rather than perish. When our greatest desire is to see that God is glorified, then we can persevere in rejoicing through the deepest valley. That's the promise of God's word to you this morning. That if you set your eyes on seeing that that Christ's name is magnified, that he is exalted, that the gospel is proclaimed in all of the earth, then in the deepest valleys you can find joy. Yet in the midst of our trials and in the midst of our sufferings, it's hard to take our eyes off our perspective, isn't it? The pain's so deep, right? And we have so many questions about what's happening. Why is my husband acting this way? Why won't my son or my daughter turn to the Lord? Why does this, this constraint need to be put on me? Why, why can't more money come in? In the midst of our sufferings, all these questions arise as to how we can have joy We're tempted to believe that joy comes from setting our hope on the deliverance from our circumstance. We're tempted to believe if if we just make it through this trial, then everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be dandy. The grass is greener on the other side. We're tempted to believe that joy will only come once we're freed from the pressure and weight of trials and persecutions and sufferings. Paul calls us to something infinitely more firm 
than our ever-shifting circumstances. He calls us to take our eyes off the hope of changed circumstance and to set them on God being glorified. Is that a joy you want? There are some of you in this room right now that are walking through the deepest pain and suffering. Maybe it's like you're walking in such a dark room that you can't even see your hand in front of your face. You just feel like you're lost. And God's word for you this morning is that you can find joy in the depth of your trial. There are some of you, as I speak about trials, you're like, my life is great. You know, things are going well. And I want you to know there's going to come a time when trial will come your way. And you need to know that in, in the deepest of your trials that you will ever face, you can find joy in Jesus Christ. I, wanna, I want that kind of joy. And so I want to ask Paul, what's giving you this joy? How do you set this resolution, I will rejoice, before you even know what's going to happen? In a second, Paul's going to say, this could end in my, in my death. And Paul is going to say, but I will rejoice. What's giving you that joy? Look to verse 20. It says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul's hope is that Christ would be honored, that his name would be glorified, that in the midst of his deep pain, light would be shed on Jesus Christ. We need to take a moment to, to let these words settle in our minds by thinking about Paul's circumstance. As Paul writes this, he's been in jail for two years. And he doesn't know when he's going to be let go. He's awaiting his trial. And so there's so much uncertainty. Is he going to remain in jail for the rest of his life? Is he going to be freed from jail? Or is he going to die in jail? There's so much uncertainty. And he writes this letter to the Philippians to encourage them, saying, even though I am in chains, even though I am in jail, the gospel will not be stopped because it's dependent on something infinitely better than me. It's dependent on the glory of Jesus Christ. And that will go forth. On his way to prison, he faced a life-threatening storm in the Mediterranean Sea. He had been deserted in prison by other leaders, and these leaders were now preaching against him. He would even say it about that, that as long as they're preaching Christ, he doesn't really care if his name is scorned. The weight of this pain is multiplied and that the Philippians are really questioning if God's still working through him. And so he needs to write a letter saying, yes, God is working through my imprisonment. He just planted this church 10 years ago. And now they're saying, I don't, I don't know if we should still have fellowship with you, Paul. He's facing in, imminent death. And this was his present suffering. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he tells us about more of his sufferings. He says this, I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil, in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food. 
and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If there is anyone who knows suffering, it is this man who makes the resolution, I will rejoice. In the face of all this suffering, Paul's resolution stands clear. If more suffering means more glory, then bring it on. If my suffering more leads to more of God being glorified in the world, then bring it. I can't imagine um, what a letter would look like to Harvest Bible Chapel Durham from Miles Holmes in prison. Right at this point, I'd probably be like, um, I'm praying for my deliverance so that I can get out of this jail, right? Maybe something like that. Or, or maybe, I can't wait to be delivered from this jail so I can just see the light on my face, the golden glory of the golden arches of McDonald's and eat a Big Mac. Or I might say, I can't wait to see my wife again. But Paul doesn't want to be delivered if it won't lead to, gl- to Christ's glory. He will rejoice when Christ is glorified. This leads us to ask some pretty hard-exposing questions. What is my hope in the midst of trials? What do I want to happen when I'm suffering? What do I believe will lead to joy? So often, when we really get down to our heart, we discover that our hope is to be relieved. Our hope is to be relieved. We want the weight of that suffering off of our shoulders. Paul calls us to shift our hope to the glory of God. When we live for God's glory, we can confidently expect joy. Listen to Paul's words in, uh, in verse 19. He says this. He says, I know, pretty confident words, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. There's no shadow of a doubt for Paul. Despite his circumstances, he's going to rejoice. Now, I trust that many of you in the midst of suffering are activating your inner lawyer right now, right? You're saying, okay, all right, that's all fine and dandy to say I can have joy in suffering, but I need you to know my circumstance. It's impossible to have joy when this is happening in my life. You don't know what's going on. People are sick. People are sick who don't know the Lord. I'm suffering every day in my marriage. I don't know how I'm going to even put food on the table this week. You don't know what I'm going through. You may not believe right now that that circumstances have become so horrible that you'll ever find joy again. You may not believe that finding joy is possible. But the text tells us when we are overwhelmingly fixated on God's glories, we can begin to experience joy in him. An amazing example of this comes in the life of Joni Erickson, ta-da. She writes, sorry, in the context, in her late teens, she dove into shallow water and she was paralyzed for life and ridden to a wheelchair. And she writes this, she says, once you see your affliction as a preparation to meet God, you won't be quick to call it suffering again. Even though I have rough moments in my wheelchair, for the most part, I consider my paralysis a gift. Just as Jesus exchanged the meaning of the cross from a symbol of torture to one of hope and salvation, he gives me the grace to do the same with my chair. If a cross can become a blessing, so can a wheelchair. The wheelchair, in a sense, is behind me now. The despair is over. 
There are other crosses to bear, other wheelchairs in my life to be exchanged into gifts. What is your wheelchair? What is it that you're holding on to that God wants to leverage in your life for joy? Here's the good news. You can find joy in every trial. I want to believe that in confidence. I'm so sick of experiencing trial and suffering and being made aware of how much I love this world. Isn't that what suffering does? It puts pressure on us in points where we're too quick to trust in the riches of the world and too slow to trust in the faithfulness of a father. That's what trials do to us. If you're taking notes, you can write these two points of of application that Paul gives to us. In verse 19, he wants to show us two things that help us to find joy in the midst of trials, and that is the power of supplication and the presence of a Savior. See the power of supplication in verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. The order of this passage has brought me confusion at times. I would think that if Paul's going to talk about what's going to bring him joy, first he would put the presence of his Savior, and then he would put the power of supplication. Isn't it? Doesn't it make sense that being near to Jesus Christ would carry you farther than being prayed for? And yet, continually in Paul's ministry, he reminds us that prayer is essential to a faithful walk to God, specifically other people praying for us. Listen to what he says in Romans 15. I appeal to you, brothers, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. In 2 Thessalonians, he writes, Pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. In 2 Corinthians 1.11, he says, You also help us by prayer. Everywhere Paul's going, he's unleashing the power of supplication for his life so that he can live in a way that glorifies God. And let me ask you this morning, how are you enlisting other believers to pray for you? Do you know that there are other people praying for you? Do you know that, that even maybe this morning that there are people who are faithfully lifting up your name? It is such a sweet pleasure that I even experienced this morning. This past week I lost my cell phone, which is just completely the deepest suffering you could ever be in, Right? <laughs> And so I'm, I'm really feeling this sermon right now. Um, but this morning, often when I'm preaching, I'll, I'll get these texts saying, hey man, I'm praying for you. And this morning, my supply of texts was cut off. But you know what I knew? I knew that there are some faithful men that are close to me that I knew they'd be praying for me. And I actually got, got to church and one of them said, hey, I couldn't text you, but I wanted to let you know that I've been praying for you. I said, I knew that you would. It's such a good thing to know that people are praying for you. And when people are at the throne, it unleashes a new power in your life. And so if you don't have someone to pray for you, please don't leave this room without finding someone. My guess is that most people in this room would say to you, if you said, can you pray for me regularly? They would say to you, yes, I will. That's my guess. And so don't leave this building without finding something. On the same note... Are you praying for other people regularly? Are there people that you're praying for every day to unleash the power of supplication in their life so that they can live for the glory of God? First way that we can experience joy in trials is by unleashing the power of supplication. The second is by acknowledging the presence of a Savior. We want to acknowledge the presence of a Savior in our life. Paul says, 
not only through your prayers, but also through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. This will turn out for my deliverance. When Christ left this earth, he said to his disciples, Behold, I am with you. Be reminded in the moment, in this moment, that we serve a risen and living Savior. He is here with us. In the midst of your deepest pain, he is there with you. Missionary John G. Patton writes this illuminating journal entry. He recounts a time when he was hiding in a tree, and around the tree were um, surrounding him hostile natives. And he had just experienced the death of his wife and a child on the mission field. He pursued God's calling, and his wife had died on the field. His child had died on the field. And he's hiding in this tree, afraid for his life. And he writes this, I climbed in the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I hear the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of savages, yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlit flickered among the chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many a night alone in such a tree. To feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then. Be reminded that suffering has a unique way of making us more aware of the presence of Jesus Christ. So often we take things into our own hands. We try to ratchet up our works when it comes to suffering. And God wants you to rest in the comfort of a father who cares for you. When we live to glorify God, we have purpose in our trials. Paul also wants to teach us that when we live to glorify God, I have perspective in my time. Living to magnify Christ has changed not only Paul's present perspective, but also his view of eternity and time going forward. Because his eyes are set on the glory of God and his perspective of, his perspective of time has changed. Now he can say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This desire is set aflame to see God glorified. Paul teaches us that in reality, there's only two longings for each Christian. There's only two hopes for us in this world. One is to live a life of fruitful labor to the glory of God. And the other is to die and be in the presence of Jesus Christ, our Savior. There are only two options, to live for Christ or for, to die for Christ. I love the way that Jim Elliott puts it in one of his journals. He says, I he's praying, he says, I covenanted with the Father to do one of two things. Either glorify himself to the utmost in me or slay me. He heard me, I believe, so that now I have nothing to look forward to but a life of sacrificial sonship or heaven, which is coming soon, perhaps tomorrow. What a pr prospect. Perhaps even today, death could come. Perhaps even right now, this would make the illustration really powerful if I died, right? That's a joke, but none of you guys got it, so... You guys are like, is he really going to die? This is the life of every Christian. We have two desires, either to live this life in service to Jesus Christ or to die and be with Jesus forever. 
It's not always been this way for those who proclaim Christ. There was a time when our desires had nothing to do with Jesus Christ. We lived in the pursuit of personal happiness as much as we could find it in this world. We cried day after day, more money, more fame, more friends, more entertainment, more fun. And yet, isn't it true that the more of the world you get, the less satisfying it becomes? It never truly satisfies. The testimony of every believer is that you did not always live for Christ. You lived for the sinful gains of this world. But there was a day when the Spirit came and opened your eyes to a new affection. No longer did you, be, no longer did you long for the things of this world. Now you longed for more of Jesus Christ. You said, Christ will be enough in my life. I want him. I don't want anything else. He said, Jesus plus nothing is everything. And I want to give him my all. And you did that because the Spirit illuminated your eyes to see Jesus as worthy of your pursuit. And yet I'm so aware that in this room there are possibly many who have not chosen to place their faith in Jesus Christ. There are many who don't pursue Christ to you, it doesn't make sense that a man would say to live as Christ. And it makes even less sense that someone would say to die as gain. Let me plead with you for a moment to turn to Christ. Let me plead for you a moment to take your gaze off the pursuit of worldly things and to set them on the glory of Jesus Christ. Meditate for a moment, each of you, on your coming death. It's going to happen. One out of every one person dies. You're not invincible, and it will happen. And so I, I, I feel a disservice letting you leave this room without meditating on the fact that someday you will draw your last breath. And what will that death be for you? Will it be gain? Let me tell you that if you're not living for Jesus Christ, if you haven't given yourself wholesale to the glory of Jesus Christ, to magnifying the greatness of his name, then your death will only be loss. Let me ask you, what are you pursuing right now? What are you pursuing in life? What do you want out of life? Do you want money? Is that what you're hoping for? You know as well as I that many rich men have died and are buried as deep in the ground as the poor beggar. What do you want? Fame? You want people to follow you and to know of you and to know of all the great things that you have done? Take a look over history. There are many famous people who have been all but forgotten. If you pursue anything in this world, it will only be lost in your death. But there is one thing that if you pursue, you can say, I will die with gain, and that is Jesus Christ. Paul says later on Philippians, I love this. It says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Savior, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul shows what happened when he gained proper perspective. He realized that in comparison to Jesus Christ, the things of this world are rubbish. That word rubbish is actually, it's actually speaking of kind of the thing that you'd find if you had a big compost bin and you dug your hand to the bottom of it and grabbed whatever you could and then brought it out. That's what that rubbish is. 
Paul says, in comparison to pursuing Christ with your whole life, pursuing the world is like thinking that you're going to find satisfaction by digging your arm to the bottom of garbage and saying that that will be enough to satisfy you. The world doesn't satisfy. Let me ask you to turn to Christ. Today, right now, in your seat, you can put your faith in Jesus Christ. I can't do anything else to convince you. What needs to happen now is the work of the Spirit in your life to illuminate your eyes to the joys of Jesus Christ. And I'm praying for you right now that that would happen in your life if you don't know Christ. And there are others that I've been praying for you all week that you would turn to him, look to him, see that you'll find true joy in him, and then face death knowing that it brings great gain to you. When we come to Christ, our life is recommissioned Now we live in service of Christ. Paul says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. The question is, what are you living for right now? If you were to say that sentence, to live is blank, what would it be that you inserted in there? What would it be? Perhaps you don't know. One of the best ways that we can discover what we're living for is asking ourselves, why don't we believe that death is gain? Do you believe right now that if you were to die in your seat, that it would be gain to you? Do you believe that? There may be questions coming up in your head. But what about my family? But what about my job? How will it carry on? But what about this? But what about that? Paul calls us to put our whole lives in the hands of God and to trust that when he takes us, it will be gain for us. There's two ways, that, two things going on in Paul's mind as he thinks about death as gain. One is that when he departs from this world, he will be with Jesus. You know, do you know that? In the snap of a finger, you can be in the presence of Jesus Christ. That's why death is gain. No longer is it his spiritual presence beside us in suffering. It's his physical presence in heaven where we will serve him and worship him forever in the snap of a finger. And if you have confidence and assurance of salvation, then you know when you die, you will be in his presence, serving him. Another reason that Paul thinks that death is ga- that Paul says death is gain is because his death will lead to the glory of God. He firmly believes that in his martyrdom, if he were to die, the gospel would go even farther than it has now. Amber and I were um, struck with devastating Uh, news earlier in December of my best friend actually his girlfriend's dad was biking home from work and hit by a truck and killed instantly it was it was the deepest um, most tragic suffering I have I'd ever been close to and this man was a man who loved his family but more importantly he was a man who loved God and he exemplified what it means to live for Christ on his way home from work, he was biking. He was a school teacher. He was biking home, and he was biking home to have a quick dinner. And then he was heading to church to lead a missions committee meeting. After that missions committee meeting, he was going to lead the prayer meeting for the church. God had different plans for him. His life exemplified living for Christ, but on that night, God decided that his life would exemplify dying as gain. I talked to my friend the day after his death, and he started to share with me in all the ways that his death was gain. I I still can't fathom, in the depth of his suffering, in the depth of his girlfriend's suffering, 
how he could look at this and see gain. He was talking about how local media was coming and covering it and speaking of his faith and speaking of the church. We attended the funeral and, and we just saw overwhelming care of the church, a kind of care that is non-existent in the world. We attended the funeral and, and heard the gospel preached to about a thousand people. Two people made a confession of faith. And throughout the whole time, the comfort to the family and the comfort to Amber and I was that this man Jay was with the Lord. He was with the Lord. What's it going to take for my life to be lived for Christ so that I can die in a way that's gain for the kingdom of God? What's it going to take for my funeral to exalt God in the fullest? I want to live that way. Third thing, if we live for God's glory, we have priority in our tasks. It's important for us to understand what Paul's doing here. It seems as though he's, he's not really sure if he's going to live or die, but I don't believe that's the case. I believe that he's inviting us into his mind as he considers life and death. It's not like he starts writing this, message, this letter and he's like, oh, I don't know if I'll die or not. And then by the end of it, he's like, you know what, I'm going to live. He knows already, but he invites us to contemplate life and death with him. So in verse 25, he says, Convinced of all of this, as he's contemplated, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. Paul shows us how seeking to glorify God changes the priority in our tasks. No longer is life about fulfilling our goals and our dreams. No longer is life about me and doing what I want. Now life is about serving the church. It's amazing that when Paul thinks about the reward of death, he set up the reward of death. I want to be with Jesus, and I know that my death will lead to God's glory. The thing that he knows will keep him here is the church. He says, I'm going to stay on this earth because I know God has me here for a reason. And what's that reason? To be serving the church so that God can use the church for his greater glory in his kingdom. I think he was probably thinking of the words of Jesus to James and John's mother when he said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Greatness is no longer defined by all that you've done. Rather, it's defined as how you've lived your life in the service of others. The phrase, to live as Christ, is not lived out on an island, and it's not lived out as a monk in a monastery. It's lived out in the church. To live is to pursue fruitful labors for the sake of the church. We are prone in this culture to think of the church mainly in terms of consumerism. And we think of a healthy church as, what does it offer me? Do I like the worship? Do I like the kids' curriculum? You don't have to ask if you like the youth program, because you know here you love it. Right? We ask, what is this church going to do for me? We live in consumerism. But Paul says this, the gospel caters not to consumerism, but to maturity. It caters not to consumerism, but to maturity. It's maturity that is the measure of a healthy church. How is that church pursuing, equipping the saints for the work of ministry? 
I love that we're working through Acts right now. And, and I was thinking about this. The story of Acts isn't the creation of a church that lives by consumerism, is it? When Peter preaches his sermon and many are saved, you don't see a group of people who are saved saying, okay, Peter, now come over here. I, wanna, I just want to run through the kids' curriculum with you, okay? And I, don't, I, th- I think we should do this one. And he doesn't say, okay, this is what I think our program should be uh, when you establish this church. And I think we need to get a facility. Rather, he preaches the gospel and you see people saved and you see churches planted. You see the believers coming into the kingdom and serving in the kingdom. We're not saved for ourselves. We're saved for the service of others. And Acts is a perfect contrast of our minds of consumerism. Your work in the church is a sign of your maturity. Ask yourself these questions. How is your influence of the, in the sanctification of other people in this church and their pursuit of holiness? How have you influenced other people in that way? How's the Lord been working in you to be more serious about your commitment to the church? What are you sacrificing? It is, it is such a joy to come in here on a Sunday morning and to see so many people on fire for the Lord, sacrificing their time, sacrificing a morning to sleep in, to set this place up. It is such a joy to see so many couples in our church pursuing, leading a small group so that they can disciple us in the faith. It is such a joy to see our elders giving up their time, giving up their resources to lead us in Christ-likeness. We're saved to be committed to the church. The purpose, as we consider what it means to be committed in the church, Paul's example stands for us. He shows us what a life committed to fruitful labor in the church looks like. Up on the screen are going to come three commitments that we need to make if we're going to be serious about glorifying God through the work in the church. First, I'll be committed to see people progress and sanctification. I'm going, to be, I'm going to be committed. If I want to glorify God in the church, I'm going to be committed to see people progress in sanctification. When God calls you to sanctification or salvation, when God calls you to salvation, he calls you to be serious about seeing the gospel grow in the lives of other people. The Spirit works in you to illuminate the greatness of Jesus Christ. And you know what you do? You see Jesus Christ and you say, I got to invite other people to see how great my Lord and my Savior is. I got to get other people around me to see this wondrous work in the mystery of the cross. And we start inviting people because we want to see them progress and grow and mature in the faith. Listen, you, there's, no, there's not a useless person in this room for the task of maturing the people and the saints in this church. There's not a single person who's useless. You might think, oh, I don't have, I don't have gifts and I, I don't have talents and, and I, don't, I just don't know much. I don't know enough to, you know, pursue maturity. And that is not a good enough excuse. God has given you gifts. He's given you breath. He's given you a voice. He's given you arms. There are ways that you can serve him. The need to see other people progress in growth highlights that we are desperate people. We're desperately in need of help, aren't we? Isn't that true? Like, we just cannot live this life alone. 
We desperately need the help of other people. And so this church is the gathering of people who are desperately in need of help, helping people who are desperately in need of help. Like we say often, we're beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. We gather together for mutual ministry. We're working for each other's growth in the gospel. And now I want to get pretty deep with you for a moment. Okay, so everyone have your eyes on me because we're going to go deep for about a minute and I don't want to lose you in this. And I find this really works in youth if I just get everyone looking at me. All right? I don't know if it'll, if it'll transfer here, but at least the youth will get it. I want to go deep with you, okay? I want to talk about my pants for a second. But, sorry. I lied to you. We're not going deep. We're going to talk about my pants. I have certain pants that are a little baggy for me. And so when pants are baggy, what do you get? Open answer. What do you put on when your pants are too baggy? A belt. Thank you. That's great. Participation. We're doing this well. Okay, you put on a belt. And so I put on a belt. I tighten it up because I need that belt and you need that belt to accomplish the purpose of keeping me appropriately covered. Right? But what is holding the belt up? Belt loops. And so who's the real hero in this situation? Who's the one who's holding up the pants? Is it the belt or is it the belt loops? Who's the one who gets the glory? And the answer is both. The belt needs the loops. You're like, this is the weirdest illustration I have ever heard. And Ian's like, why did I ask this guy to preach? I'm never going to do that again. All right? They, They need both. There's a mutual ministry going on. And in the same way, we need each other. We need each other. We're in desperate need of inviting people into our lives to help us, to convict us of sin, to encourage us in holiness. We're people in desperate need of help, helping other people in desperate need of help. Second commitment you'll make, I'll be committed to see people rejoice in their faith. Paul's aim is to live in a way that constantly reminds others that faith is the best option. We're in a battle right now. Do you know that? That every second of our lives, we're in a battle to either choose the path of disobedience or to choose the path of obedience. And we're promised that when we choose the path of obedience, we can rejoice. Those who choose disobedience always suffer. Those who choose obedience always find joy. It's a promise. Choose to sin, choose to suffer. Choose to obey. Choose God's blessing. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, they they had a choice. They could eat of multiple trees. Some of the trees they were given by God to enjoy as a gift. And so they could choose to pursue obedience to God, to enjoy as gifts, to continue to enjoy presence with the Lord, walking with him, talking with him. I can't imagine how sweet it was for Adam and Eve. And yet they had another choice. They could choose to eat of the fruit of the tree that would lead to their death. And standing before them were two trees that they could eat of, one that would lead to life and presence with the Lord, and another that the Lord promised nothing but death, and that would give them nothing but death. You ever thought about that? What did Adam and Eve receive for eating the apple of diso- or the fruit of disobedience? They received nothing but death. And that's the same thing. Every time we sin, we receive nothing but shame, nothing but guilt, nothing but death. But every time we pursue obedience, we receive joy in the faith that it takes to say, I'm going to live for God even though it's hard. 
Paul says his function as a person is to be continually reminding people of the joy there is in faith of the joy there is in choosing obedience. And he's going to go to every church and he's going to continually preach the gospel. Turn to Jesus Christ. Your greatest joy is there. Let me ask you, what are you doing to cause joy in the lives of others? How are you influencing others in your sphere of influence to pursue joy in Jesus Christ and not in this world? Paul wants to help people in this decision. Third thing we'll be committed to is to see people glory in Christ. We want to see people progress in sanctification. We want to see people rejoice in faith. And thirdly, we want to see people glory in Christ. He writes this, so that you may have ample cause in me to glory in Christ Jesus. This verse concludes a powerful section in which Paul is reporting what is happening with the gospel while he is in chains. In verse 13, he's shown that the gospel has led to the whole prison guard knowing that he is there for the sake of Jesus Christ. And we can imagine that some are coming to Jesus Christ. Acts even speaks of a jailer who's converted under Paul's ministry. Not only that, others, in verse 14, he tells us, are more boldly speaking the word of God without fear. Him being in jail, he tells us in verse 17, is causing others to proclaim Christ. Verse 20 tells us that he's given the opportunity to exalt Christ. Amazing things are happening. Amazing works are being done in his life. And so he calls the church to glory in the work that God is doing through him. This highlights the truth that to some extent the church is to be a place where the work of God shines brightly against the weakness of sinners. That's our desire for this church. We want people to walk in and, and to, to hear my pants illustration and to say, these are messed up people. And if they meet me, they're going to say that. It's, pretty, it's 100%. We want people to say, these people are weak, but God is doing something here. But God is... God, is, God must be glorious if he can work through these people. They're so humble. They're so lowly. In the eyes of the world, they don't seem like much, but so much is happening here. It must be that God is working in them. One of the ways that we can best glorify God is by discovering how God is working in the lives of others. And I would commend you to this. Take this home with you and work on this. In the coming weeks, work on your conversation. What is it that you speak about with believers? Okay, let's, let's just rid ourselves the pain of ever talking about how poorly the Leafs are doing again. Okay, and free me from the pain of talking about how greatly your team's doing. And let's talk about the work that God is doing in each of our lives. At first, it may seem awkward, but the fruit of it is so good. We glorify Christ as we talk about the work that he's doing in us. I love what John Piper says. He says, God's working in us in 10,000 ways of which we are aware of three. God's working in us, in each of us, in this room, in about 10,000 ways. And at this moment, you may be aware of three ways that he is working if, he, if you are thinking about it. How's God working in my life? What's he doing through me? That's amazing. Okay, so... Let me just be upfront with you. One of the things I'm really bad at that's not a spiritual gift for me is math. But we're going to do some right now at the expense that even though I calculated this, it still could be wrong. 
okay? So you guys are going to have to proof check me on this. But there's probably about 175 people in this room. Okay, so if God's doing 10,000 works individually, can you fathom that? 10,000 works in each of your lives, that means he's doing 1,750,000 works in this very room. Sometimes we don't believe that God is alive. He is alive. He's working in this room. Almost 2 million works he's doing if these stats are true. All right? We know each of those. We know three of them. That means that there are 525 things that God is doing in this room that we could be made aware of this morning, this service. And so we could set up a mic and 525 times we could hear of a significant thing that God is doing in the lives of people. God is at work in this church. And so let's spend some time on Sunday mornings and throughout the weeks figuring out what's God doing in your life. I want to glory in Jesus Christ by seeing how he's working in you. The only vision I have is what he's doing in my life, but I know he's going to be doing things in your life. He's always working in us. And so I would just commend to you, think intentionally in your conversations and spend time praying together. I love to see people praying, praising God that he is at work even in the midst of suffering. When we live for God's glory, we unleash for ourselves treasure in every circumstance. In trials, in life, in death, in our tasks, in every circumstance, we unleash treasure from God. Our trials are given a new purpose. Our perspective of time is changed and the substance of our lives given meaning. And the task that we commit ourselves to is focused for the glory of God. In every area, we are changed because we have set ourselves upon this simple task to proclaim to the world that Christ is enough. Do you believe that, church? You believe that Christ is enough, that he is all satisfying, that if you were to lose everything in your life right now, like Job did, your family, your money, everything, your friends, that no one stood near you, that still the Lord standing beside you would be enough for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe in every trial, God's presence is enough for you? We seek to live our lives to publicly proclaim the truth that Jesus is the greatest pursuit. We've been saved to do that. We model what it means to have a deeper joy in the deepest pains of life. We model what it means to give our time to the service, honor, and glory of Jesus Christ. We model in our lives what it means to take up every task to honor the name of Jesus Christ. And we model that he is enough, not only for Harvest Durham, not only for all the harvests in the world, not only for all the believers in the world, Jesus Christ is enough for the entire world. Will your, will your life model this going forward? Will you pursue the glory of Jesus Christ and bring those who are around you, around the cross, to see that Jesus Christ is all satisfying and that our life is best lived to his glory?